Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Power Talk. Power Talks are short, powerful interviews from leading youth violence experts, spreading new ideas and sharing best practice. For more information on the work our charity Power the Fight does and to discover how you can help empower communities to end youth violence, please visit www.powerthefight.org.uk. In today's episode, we are joined by Professor Robert Beckford and Dr. Selena Stone as they share a theological perspective on violence affecting young people. Good to have you guys here. I know you've come all the way from place outside of London, Birmingham, Coventry, Winchester, all these places. Um, but I've been really excited to get you guys on to Power Talks. Um, your people I look at, as I would say, friends, but also I would say... I just feel the work that you are doing in the space that you're in is pioneering and I'm like your biggest fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've supported us, Powder and me personally as well in different ways. Um, so let's get into introductions. Um, I'm going to start with Selena. Would you like to introduce yourself, who you are, what you do and your connection to Powder Fire? <laughs> sure, well. sure, sure. Um, I'll start with the, the first thing. So... When you were gonna found Power the Fight, you told me about it, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had our little like starter meetings. How are we gonna do this? What's it all gonna look like? So I had the privilege of being one of the early trustees, which is a real privilege for me, um, and amazing to see how it's grown so much. Uh, I... Since you left, <laughs> <laughs> since the seeds that I sold, I, I would say that S- Selena was the foundation. <laughs> foundation, okay, 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 right, right, right. <laughs> and that's how we've been able to grow, Robert. Yeah, 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 okay. Now, so I teach theology at a theological college in London at the moment, um, and my interests really are in Christian theology and, and the church and social justice. So how ideas about faith, about God, about our human life impact how Christians act in society. Um, I'm particularly interested in inequality and social justice and those kinds of things. Dr. Selena Stone, I mean, so much more I would love to say, <laughs> but that's incredible. And um, like, thank you for coming on. and. Yeah, the work that you're doing is pioneering. So thank you. And sir. Yeah, good afternoon or morning, evening, everybody. And look, first of all, <laughs> let me say it's a real privilege privilege to be here with Dr. Selena Stone. Selena is one of the few black women in Europe with a PhD in theology, probably only one of three or four within the UK. So we are truly blessed to be in elite uh, company <laughs> And also, it's a pleasure to be with you as well, Ben. Power the Fight is a major player in serious youth violence interventions, also around social justice, also around anti-racism. So it's a real privilege for me to be here. My, this is this end, my, end, 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 end it right there. That's a great intro. End it right there. My, my, my jobs, i got three roles. First is in teaching. I've got three professorial roles. Because I'm a Jamaican, so we work tree jab. Um, so I have a... My, I'm the... I'm the Professor of Climate and Social Justice at the University of Winchester, where I run the Winchester Institute for Climate and Social Justice. I'm a Professor of Black Theology at Queen's Ecumenical Foundation in Birmingham, where I work primarily with the postgraduate students and PhD students in Black Theology. I'm also an Associate Professor at VU University in Amsterdam, which is where we do the more traditional, mainstream, Eurocentric Christian theology, although I'm being brought in to kind of disrupt that. So that's the first job. Second job is still in broadcasting, still make the odd film, although when you get old and ugly, they put you onto radio. So most of my work now (laughs) is done on radio. So coming out later this year, I've got a programme on the Codrington Plantation on BBC World Service. 
but I still dabble every now and then in filmmaking. So, and we have um, an independent film which is coming out in May called After the Flood, which is the first film on the relationship between Christianity, slavery, and Christian reconciliation. It's an independent film supported by the Movement for Justice and Reconciliation. So I still dabble in the media work. And then my third job has emerged out of doing work in reparations. So I do a fair bit of consulting with corporations and individuals and charities who want to either engage in decolonization or engage in the thorny, tricky, dangerous path of doing reparations. So those three jobs, teaching, filmmaking and consulting. Wow, I mean, both of you, with the, with the work that you are doing and how busy you are, we are just, it's privileged just to have you here. And thank you for coming on the Power Talk. It's amazing what you guys are doing. I'm going to get straight into it. Um, as you both know, uh, the book that I wrote back in 2019, one of the challenges I put in the book is really about the church response to social action. I was very specific actually about youth violence and their violence affecting young people. Um, Selena, I know it's something we've spoken about a lot, but I wanted to get an idea of what you feel is the church responsibility in this area. Is there like a theological, social, political response from the church, should there be one? And the reason I say that, we had uh, the privilege, privilege of having uh, Lord Michael Hastings on here uh, with Lord Baron Sir uh, Simon Willie on here as well. And both of them were actually quite critical of the church response in, in this particular area. What do you feel needs to happen? Is there a, a, a biblical response to this issue? And then I will bring in Robert, who I know he's itching to jump in. Go <laughs> Selena first. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just so many spaces we can go to really like explore how churches should move beyond seeing the world in a kind of sacred versus secular worldview where the church's responsibility is just things like a church service and a prayer meeting and praying for people in their spiritual life to actually recognizing that all of reality is supposed to be brought into this beautiful image of the kingdom of God in which everything is made new. The people that are usually last are first and the people who used to be first are last. And I think that the church's responsibility really is in its ideal sense at least, even if we don't see that, that often is supposed to be witnessing to this new way of being human. Um, that's no longer like running after all kinds of idolatries that betray genuine love and care for one another. And I suppose be putting love of God and love of neighbor first. So I think it's quite, it's all through the text basically from the old one running through to the new, mm. this message of actually all of reality is supposed to be made new. So for me, that includes anything that is opposed to life, everything that is running up against human flourishing is a business of the church. So when you talk about violence and youth violence, and particularly the ways that it's linked to poverty, disenfranchisement and lack of opportunity, it's one of the most obvious areas, I think, where the church should be really imagining what its role might be. Yeah. Um, so I think the theology is really all there for us, really. It's all there. And it sounds like, you know, you open the Bible, you read your Bible, it should inspire us, it should inspire churches, pastors, vicars, leaders to be looking contextually at what's going on in the community and, and be like, yeah, we it's obvious that we're going to engage. Mm. But clearly that isn't happening. Um, Robert, what's your view? Well, my, my, I think it's right to distinguish between what the biblical text says and what happens in terms of church life. So let me take them in reverse. What happens in terms of church life? I would argue this. The church, whether black church or white majority churches, is incapable of engaging with 
social justice, particularly issues around race for three basic reasons. First of all, most of these churches have colonial theology. And what I mean by that is they don't have theological ideas that deal effectively with issues of racial equality. Uh, in in uh, Anglican church traditions, only one book written in the last 200 years that addresses issues around race and theology. So you're asking a church tradition. Methodist church isn't much better. Baptists, God bless them, ain't much better. Pentecostal charismatic folk, they need Jesus on this one because they haven't addressed the issue. So you've got, first of all, the problem of coloniality, a colonial Christian tradition. Second problem why the church can't do this is because it doesn't have a understanding of the human being which equates blackness with full humanity. What I mean by that is every church has a doctrine of the human being, which means human beings are made in the image of God and are meant to be equal. Well, that hasn't happened in terms of church history. Church ran plantations, post-Windrush period, church discriminated against black and brown bodies. Churches, even black churches, haven't necessarily developed a theology like the Rastafarians, Nation of Islam, which foregrounds the humanness of black people. So when a deficit, when it comes to taking human life seriously and black human life seriously, therefore, we can see black people killing each other, lateral violence, and say, it's terrible. We can see brutality within the black community because we don't have a theology which actively says these people are fully human. We need to treat them in the same way we would treat people who are racialized as white. So you've got that, you've got coloniality, you've got the problem with the doctrine of humanity. And thirdly, you've got a problem in terms of moral courage. And what I mean by that is most black and white church leaders do not have the granolas to speak truth to power on issues of race and racialized oppression. Black church tradition, you've got in the pulpit pastors who claim to be prophetic, came to be lions for the Christian tradition, but on the street they're like mouse. That's part of the problem. There isn't the moral courage. They're cowardly when it comes to addressing police brutality. They are timid when it comes to addressing gang violence and um, a knife crime within the community. So we've got a real problem. I can throw in a fourth just to add value. And the fourth is the problem of a social soteriology. We're calling Christian theology an understanding of God being concerned with all of life, not just concerned with what we get in the black church tradition, many white conservative church traditions, biopolitics, biopolitical, where the gospel is just concerned with the, with the body and the ethics of the body. The biblical tradition speaks about God being involved in every aspect of human life, including the social world. And unless you have that foregrounded in your theology, you can't see the social world as having any, any value. So my argument would be the church can't do it unless it deals with those issues. But here's the thing. So, and it's interesting that you bring race into the conversation because I always have to say this as the caveat that while in a London context, um, we we definitely see uh, a disproportionality uh, with this issue with black and brown communities being impacted. We can say across the country, it's not a black issue. Mm. And therefore, when we look at the increase in, in the violence affecting young people, and we've seen 30 young people, unfortunately, lose their lives in in the London context, the high since 2008, and it's not just black children, surely this pandemic, what I would call a pandemic, is enough to motivate pastors and leaders and, and churches to, to go, you know what, these are our children, these are our communities being impacted, and even if it isn't directly the children or families we know, the ramifications and the trauma, surely that's enough, but Selena, that's not happening. Like, 
Yeah. Why? And and as you're saying that, I'm I'm processing these thoughts as I go. By the way, but it kind of makes me wonder whether some of the problem is there's like a distance going on between churches and the young people who've been affected, or at least in the in the minds of churches and church leaders, it's these other young people who were involved with this thing, and it doesn't affect churches. So I wonder whether there's a, there's a, a lack of proximity that means that churches can, in a sense, see this as a, a government problem. That's affect that isn't really affecting them, mm. and so there's a lack of privatization because it seems as if, if for pastors of churches and churches being particularly within black communities, but I guess this is the same across the board. Like churches and faith groups in general are like one of the few spaces where people gather together voluntarily for around a particular reason. And this in, in this example, it's faith. So to actually have these these places where people are committed to belonging, where they're putting time, they're putting money, this feels like a real important space to be actually cultivating an appetite to see these issues as something churches should deal with. But then you have a whole list of priorities when you're gathering together. There's a concern about people's personal ambitions, their careers, their families, all these other internal things that take the place of those bigger social concerns. So even if there is a a moral sense of responsibility is where does youth violence fall in the scheme of things within a church's life? Mm-hmm. With If there's a new building project that gets all the resources and the money and then trying to think about youth violence becomes an afterthought. But isn't it about safeguarding though? Because one of the things is that, you know, most churches have youth groups, big and small. And therefore, if the young people they are serving are engaged in dealing with some of the issues which affect young people like violence um, and they, the relationship is there, surely this becomes a priority. In theory, no? Well, it should do. <laughs> but if you don't value black life, black people people killing other black people is going to go over your head. But George you, Floyd happened, right? Yeah, George Floyd happened. So surely now everybody's and what we've woke, had is, unquote, yeah, quote, we've had, unquote. And, and what we've had is a lot of talk, very little action. So, and that's normative. We usually then form committees within the church, within societies, think about what we're going to do and then hope that the issue disappears. And that's happened. That's why many churches haven't moved on this. Many secular organisations haven't really made huge strides. Look, it took Troy Deeney from Birmingham City FC to raise the question about decolonising school education. Footballer had to raise this issue because... He recognised nothing had happened, so Marcus, so there hasn't been Marcus a lot. Rashford as well with, with the... well, that's it. Mm. That's it. But I would I would add to what Selena has said and and say the reason why it doesn't happen, despite the killings, is because one there is a lack of ministerial imagination. What I mean by that is people can't think creatively about how to respond. So, for example, look at Eugene Rivers, 1988. Eugene Rivers is a graduate in a uh, 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 Harvard studying theology, sees the killing in the community, starts walking the streets, recognises that the biggest problem that young people face at that point in Boston is nobody's listening to them. Starts listening to them, develops a church community around that. I went to see him in 2010. It was a knock on the door. It was a major gangbanger giving Eugene Rivers his kids to mentor. I said, my goodness, who's that guy? I said, that guy looks a bit shifty. He's one of your parishioners. He goes, yeah. I said, you know, my goodness, I'm in the right place because these people look violent. And he said, this is what we do. They had the, the imagination to say, let me find a way in which creatively I can minister to these hard to reach groups. There's a lack of imagination in that sense, a rigid approach to ministry, which doesn't allow that kind of imagination. <clears throat> the second reason is serious youth violence is the product of systemic failure. Family failing, community failing, church failing, school failing. We created an outlaw culture. 
I grew up here when I was uh, working in Hansworth back in the 1990s. There were kids who nobody could reach because they had no engagement with any kind of major institution. Their families weren't helping them. The school weren't helping them. They, they became outlaws. So you have to respond to that kind of systemic failure mm -hmm. with a holistic theology. Church doesn't have that kind of approach. Mm -hmm. It instead deals with one issue at a time, church building, young people. So you have to have a different kind of approach to the, to the whole thing. So... Problem with ministerial imagination. Problem in terms of dealing with it holistically. And, and I think there's something else which is really quite significant here, which is we need to acknowledge that much of the theology in black churches in particular that focused on prosperity doctrine, that focused on biopolitics, is of no use to young people. It really isn't. A theology that just says, come to Jesus, clean up and you'll get your slice of the pie, isn't going to be good enough to transform the lives of working class, working poor, disaffected young people who haven't had the hope, haven't had the support that other families, middle class black families, middle class white families give their children naturally. So the theology is faulty. So I, I think we're approaching this slightly, you know, um, um, from the wrong position. We should be saying, why isn't the church? We know why the church isn't doing it. The critical question is, where is God speaking and acting right now? Because I don't believe the Holy Spirit is silent on this. God is acting. We just need to see where God is acting and be a part of that movement. But they could argue, and I'll bring Selena in in a minute, but they could argue, yeah, we are hearing from God because we've been called to do food banks and we've been called to do CAP and we've been called to, and, and just to be clear, none of those things are bad things. Some mm. of those things are incredible uh, pieces of work which are supporting communities. But it feels, and I've written about this, it feels very easy to we're going to do we're going to be a cap church we're going to be this church or that church and there's a lack of what, what i would call cultural sensitivity to actually engage in a co-produced co-designed way with the communities you're actually serving to say what do you need mm. what do you want mm. like there seems to be that uh disconnect <sighs> How do we shift that? How do well, well, I, I, let me I just mean, ask Selena? Sure, because well. sure, sure. I want to just say one thing because you started to go down a road that I want to carry on going go on. down, and that is about who's doing the work. So, like when I look at when I think about the research that I've done around church and social justice, it tends to be like individual people who are not the pastors and they're not even in senior leadership. So, I think we might be looking in the wrong place because I think black churches have members who are doing really great things. It's just not the formal structures of the church mm. but they are often connected into faith communities so i think there were people who i know who run amazing charities doing really great work who were not running churches in fact they, they want to do the opposite they don't want to be running a church they want to do the work and so there's space i might be thing... able to relate to that a little bit <laughs> <laughs> i'm projecting <laughs> but it's like so i think there were people who are like who are doing the work right. who are people who are christian but they're not church leaders and i think those people embody something of this thing we're talking about about mm. this kind of very not even very radical it's quite basic christian um, mm. outworking of faith this care for those who are most on the edges of society and I think those are the spaces where we need to look and say that's where it's happening yeah. mm. and I think if we're looking at churches and saying to the pastors you need to do this this and the other like I don't know how successful it ever is to try to make someone do something new right. if they have their priorities they have what they're doing with the theologies there Rob has been doing this work for years and years yeah. and years um, and some other attitudes still haven't shifted so I think 
Yes, we can keep on saying to church leaders, inspiring them, working on their imagination, because mm. that I think is essential, inspiring them with possibilities of what they can do. But I don't think we should feel as if there's no hope if church leaders don't change. Yeah, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say no. there's no hope. I'm not, I'm not saying you're no, saying I, I, that. I, I, but but just... what I would say, what I would say, just um, adding to that is, I'm not an optimist. I'm an Afro-Christian pessimist. And what I mean by that is, I live a fugitive existence. And what I mean by that is I do not think we approach this issue by believing we're going to get to the promised land. We instead are always trying to run away from the plantation, living like a fugitive, always attempting to subvert and undermine because we're on the run. So what I try and do is encourage my students, encourage the people I'm working to with to think that we're maroons. We're living in a hostile environment and therefore we have to act accordingly. Mm. Maroonage is the Caribbean mm. version of what the African-Americans call fugitivity, which emerges out of the discourse of Afro-pessimism. What I, what I suggest is that's the approach. And therefore, I look for organisations, institutions, individuals are willing to do that kind of fugitive work. So if we're looking at examples of good practice, you're completely right. The parachurch examples are where the spirit is moving on these issues around youth violence, about engaging with social justice. And what we need to do is support these people, resource these people to do this work much more effectively. But also, we need to encourage some of them to take their call seriously, because a lot of the young black mm. women in particular who are doing this work aren't necessarily called to just do social... They're, they're ministers, but their church doesn't want to yes, ordain them, yes. or they don't want to take it. So, so you see, yes. there's, a, so there's a lot of stuff that needs mm. to take place mm. on both sides. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's like, it, it's very true. But okay, Selena, you 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 teach at and lecture at St Melitus. Um, so what are we saying then? Actually, this conversation is no point really trying to teach the the next generation of of vicars and pastors. Don't worry about the social action side of stuff because you're not going to really get it anyway. So we're just not going to go there. Like, is that what we really see saying? Or? I mean, no. But I, I, I've been reading a lot of black nihilism, like Afro-pessimism stuff recently, and it's been helping to articulate some of my gut instincts that are forming, which is that I think sometimes we over-invest our energy in transforming people or institutions that have shown no evidence of wanting to change. Mm. Um, and we actually as sometimes get drawn into those narratives. We, we get convinced to give our best energy to these organizations that are not really willing to change. And um, because of the sense that there's hope that it might get better, rather than doing that more strategic thing of saying, where are the groups of people who are really about that life? And how do we actually do something together? So I get that. But then in that case, then, if, that, if we take that perspective, we're not going to necessarily look to the church. We're going to look at these parish church organisations or, or youth or, you know, you've someone like Power to Fight. <laughs> but still then convincing churches to invest in organisations is still a barrier. Yes. So, th so that's the first half of what I wanted to say. The <laughs> other half of what I wanted to say was that I do believe very much that there is a potential for people who are still forming their perspectives to change and to actually have this kind of focus really embedded in their thinking and this is why I do what I do because I realize that actually when when a new person is training to be a minister they're open to new ideas they have a period of time when they're training 
that is a time to for me that's how i see it anyway to sow these seeds of 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 critical thinking around faith of theology decolonizing theology thinking about a broader way of thinking about the gospel about christian ministry in but again in the hope that they will take this seriously when they're in a in a parish or in a community and they're dealing with these kind of matters that they will something will click in their minds and say you know what we can't turn a blind eye to this Mm. but that is me hope being optimistic there's no guarantees that that's mm. going to happen. And yeah. so that's important. It's important that we talk to churches. It's important that we bring this matter to their door and say, this is part of your ministry that you take responsibility for addressing this. Mm. But I think multiple strategies are needed. But I, I still can't get away from, and I've always said this, that the church is free key ingredients which could be part of this solution to this issue. Not the only solution. I don't mm. think the church necessarily even to be need to be leaders in this. But we have buildings. Uh, we have the biggest volunteer service in the UK. And depending on your theology, unlimited resources from heaven. And yet <laughs> those three ingredients are yet, in my opinion, to make a cake, which is nice. Yeah. So why are we not able to take those and not necessarily create a framework? I think everything should be hyper-local and con culturally sensitive and contextual mm. to the, the mm. communities you're serving. Yeah. And I think you're right. There are definitely uh, pockets where you can see this happening, but it feels like we are woefully not using what God has given us to really step into the arena. Mm. I mm. suppose like solution-based wise, mm. what needs to happen to ignite, other than this, uh, a wave of the spirit, mm. what, what needs to happen practically solution-wise to ignite the church into feeling they can get involved in this? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there are three things that strike me as being important. One is to stop colluding with the state. Food banks for me were about collusion. Part of it is charity, which you have to do. If you're a brother or sister, if you see a brother or sister in need and you have this word good, do not open up your bowels of compassion. It says in 1 John 1, how can you say you have the love of God within you? You have to be compassionate, you have to be charitable. But then they colluded by creating a national network that, that did the um, the charity work, but not the advocacy. And the real issue was the reduction of spending in youth services, other services within the community by the Conservative government post the um, economic meltdown of two th 2008. And the church then didn't, didn't fight that. That's part of the problem. So we need to stop colluding and actually start asking critical questions why the government gives tax breaks to the super rich and brutalizes the, the desperately poor. Second thing is, and I'll go back to this, it requires moral courage. It requires people to stand up and say, no, we're going to protest, we're going to resist. When I was younger, I used to do this. I fought the BNP, be fighting fascists since I retired fighting fascists at 45. I thought I'd done enough. Stood up to the BNP, made television programs about it, stood up to neo-Nazis. Why? Because I wanted to model to younger people, to the next generation, this is what you do with these people. When I, when I did that, when I made the film in 2006, the people who called me the next day were roadmen. And they said to me, what's the next move? We've seen what you said, my goodness. I thought, mm. it's, just, it's a film. I'm a university lecturer. I don't know if I can go back on the street. It made me aware. What young people are looking for are role models who will stand up and resist the system. Thirdly, there are really positive spaces. And what I'm suggesting here, Ben, is that what Selena has said, we don't buy into the narrative that the way we, we, we've just got to work with the system. We've got to work outside of the system and support people who are doing creative things from the bottom up. Black Lives Matter has shown us that. You, you know, you know, the system itself, 
doesn't work for us. You can do it through forming small groups of like-minded people committed to a particular agenda and making huge changes. So in Birmingham, for example, uh, before he, he, when he was a, a healthier, Carver Anderson's work was really important in terms of working with young people at risk from serious youth violence at street level. And that organisation was supposed to, I think it will post-pandemic now, morph into a church group, mm. you know. Similarly, you know, I think that's what should happen with Power of the Fight. It should be a conglomerate of um, social organisations, a church, a mission, the media work, the advocacy. All of these things have to become part of the ministry to address the multifaceted areas at which disadvantage is being played out in contemporary society. So those three things give me hope. It's because I think what I'm seeing, and, and this this speaks, I think, to the culture we're in now, where there's a lot of virtue signaling and everyone, everyone wants to be seen to say the right thing, to be at the right events, to be supporting the right causes, at least verbally. And I think the moral courage is about where's the action that affirms what's being said about. We need to be more. I, th I think sorry to cut you, but we need to be more honest about this. The vast majority of the black leaders, black denominations, are patsies. What I mean by that is, you know, what the Jamaicans would say if they said to them, "Dem pambula, dem nyamit." These 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 are people who are not necessarily going to stand up to power, speak truth to power. They are there to collude. They're happy to take honours from the state, from the system. They're happy to be conciliated. They're happy to be in the room, happy to be at the table, but they have no tradition, no history of representing black communities and fighting against racial injustice, none. Well, let, let's leave, let's see the finish of the <laughs> I forgot what I was gonna say. <laughs> I mean, I, okay, so here's the thing. And I and I think I, I don't disagree with, with anything anyone said. One of the things that I often think about and, um, I think it's important is the pressure on any black or brown person once they get to a point and I think it was uh, Lord Woolley who said this he, he felt like once you get to the point the door must be left open for the next people to come through and one of the things I, I realised when it was Martin Luther King Day something we don't really celebrate in this country but you know obviously on social media and it's an American thing but you see all this stuff um I read an article where they said, uh, as we know, Martin Luther King was assassinated at 39 years old, which is crazy when you think of, think about it. But when they did the autopsy, they said that he had a heart of a 60-year-old. So my point is this. I'm always like, man, this work is tough. And is it fair that there is such a massive expectation, using your words, on the black men, we know that black women are in the context, but you know, to, to bring the community up. It, why is it, in a particularly in a Christian context, why are we not going to our white brothers and sisters, very much like Martin Luther King let, let him in the Birmingham jail, was like going at the white evangelicals saying, well, where are you? This is not just our struggle. Where is the, what is their response? And should we be actually looking for them to be supporting us in, the, in, the, in this struggle? I mean, it, it, I'm interested in what struggle you're talking about, particularly because you because the youth violence one isn't a race one, which you always remind us. Yeah, it's it's not. You're right. It's not a race one. I suppose I'm, when I'm talking about struggle, there's a probably a, a greater, wider structural harm. So while I would say it's not, youth violence isn't a black or white issue in particular context. Mm. When you look at the the systems which actually impact those young people, and we talk, for example, the education system, where we know that black Caribbean boys are, are four times more likely to be excluded than, than their white counterparts, which then can lead to a school to prison 
pipeline, which can lead to them being incarcerated or death, there is a structural oppression where we're saying, actually, if you're black, you're more likely to be impacted by this oppression than mm. your white mm. counterparts. Mm. So when I say struggle, yeah, I'm widening I the context. I, mm. Mm. I mean, I think, I think in an ideal world, the struggle to deal with these, these systems would be an interracial struggle with people of every background. And I think I also want to say that it's particularly for me when you think about the class dynamics in this. So for me, I think there's an unhelpful divide that often happens between working class communities and poor groups of people, all of whom are being impacted by the same issues, although we know it's overrepresented for black and some Asian groups. So I think there needs to really be a bringing together of like groups of shared interests around these issues. So like, if you go to somewhere like Glasgow and you see the levels of poverty going on, there shouldn't be a reason why a community is in Glasgow and a community in London that's all been affected by the same national issues should not be able to work together on, on dealing with some of those things. Um, but this to me is not about the church necessarily. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's about just across the board. Yeah, yeah. Like how do we begin? Well, Rob was getting a call from, call from Jamaica. That's, it's like my that. daughter. <laughs> it's my daughter probably expected me to pick her up, but it's not my turn to pick her up. So. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Sorry about that. Like, yeah. how do you bring together groups of shared interests? Mm. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily about just going to Christians and saying, oh, please, will you help us to deal with this? If they don't see it, they don't see it. And this is, again, where I think I'm at now. It's like the level of energy that is spent re-articulating, repeatingly, repeating and repeating the same things to the same group of people who then say, sure, sure, I understand. I, yeah, yeah, nod, 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 and then do nothing in solidarity. Yeah. That cycle is very frustrating. And yeah. I think now that the point is, where do you find those people who really do get it, who, ha who are committed to action yes. and build with those people? Yeah. I, Whatever race they are, because yeah. I think that, that, that it has to go across those lines. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. But it shouldn't be led by people who are not the most affected. Yeah. So we're talking about a community-led approach, which, and this is, again, this really does time with Power the Fight's work because we are always about how do you empower the community to be the voice? How do you do something which is co-produced, co-designed uh, participation? Yeah. Um, and I think that takes a lot of time, build up a trust, but also having those conjugal organisations which do have the link, and th these guys will be sick of me saying this, but this air and ground uh, engagement, which often and not brought together because they haven't got the right conduit organization who has currency, I suppose, in both, yeah. is really difficult to identify. Um, we are drawing to a close, but I'm going to. Sure, sure. He's, well, he's look, ready to. I would. Here's the final, I would, final I just, word. No, 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 final <laughs> word. Just to add to what you're saying, I'm, I'm personally more Garveyite in terms of thinking about the responsibility that we have and how we then work and who we work with. And what I mean by that is, first of all, you measure your success, not by how much you've done, but how many people have you got off the plantation? And that's always been an important heuristic for me. So for example, working in television, from day one, the emphasis was on who can we invest in in terms of black producers, black, black presenters, who else can we get involved in this? When I worked at BBC um, Radio, I had 15 black graduates in the office. None of them were doing, all of them were doing work, but I had 15 black graduates in there because I wanted them all to be able to put on their CV that they were, they were, they were working at the BBC. One of them went on to become, a, just won a BAFTA. 
for her work um, uh, Subnormal, the film about the way in which the documentary on the way in which the London Education Authority discriminated systematically against. She, she listen, I, I, I emailed her and said, I loved your programme. She goes, don't you remember? I said, no. She goes, I was one of the 50. I said, my goodness. I said, y'all look alike to me. You know, yeah, 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 but, yeah, but, the, but the point was the investment, what it reminded me of was the investment from day one to get her to win in that BAFTA. David Olashoga, TV historian. His first films were based on two ideas that I pitched to him after meeting him once. I said, let's pitch some films. We made two films for BBC Four. Those are the first films that he made. You watch the Olympics, Andrew Akinwaleri. Andrew Akinwaleri was working in a clothes shop in Birmingham. I said to him, give me a discount, a black man. And he said, he said, he didn't give me the discount, but he said, I'd like to get into film and television. I took him and he worked on my radio show for three months and he got his first gig working for um, Blue Peter. The investment is where we measure our success. And what that means is I never get tired because I know that there are black people who are coming up to do this work. Look, dude I used to mentor, used to slap him on the head, try and talk sense to him. It's Kehinde Andrews, running the first professor of black studies. I introduced him to his wife. His wife's cleverer than him, you know. But, but you know, so it's about the investment in black communities because that's Garveyism, putting your people first in the sense that you're going to invest in them so that you aren't, you're never going to get tired. I never get tired of that. And that's just in, in film. Mm. In, in, in terms of the day job, I've invested in 13 black PhDs. Not all of them have stayed in the country, not all of them work in higher education, not all of them work in theology, but consistently in choosing to invest in black students. When I was at Birmingham, I had 20 black PhDs. Now, because I'm older and I do less work, I have eight black PhDs that I'm working with and a waiting list because I've got less time. Investing in the community so that we are never alone and that there's somebody else to pick up the pieces um, afterwards. That's the first thing. The Garveyite part in terms of thinking about who we work with. Look, this may sound really, really harsh. And it's not meant to be racialized. It's just the perspective. I'm not here to save white people. I really am not. I'm here to, for the sake of black liberation. So I'm a black liberation theologian. If white radicals want to join the movement because white liberals generally slow it up. That's been our historical tradition. Remember, more black, more white women get benefits daily from anti-discrimination legislation than, than black men. You know, we're not the beneficiaries of this. It's white liberal women who are the beneficiaries of this. So consequently, for me, my mission has been how can I work with, collaborate with black people both at home, across the diaspora, as they call it in Birmingham, die as poor here, how can we then build up these networks? Why? Because we never, ever have that opportunity. Part of racism is making us think that we can't work together. Part of racism is, think, is making us think that somehow we can't build stuff. So I want to invest in that. I've invested in those kind of projects. Hence, why I'm part of what Dulcie McKenzie, Dr. Dulcie McKenzie Dixon is doing at the Queen's Ecumenical Foundation with the Centre for Black Theology, building up, developing black scholarship around Christian theology. So I'm more Garveyite now. That doesn't mean, you know, whenever black people say they're pro-black, people think they're anti-white. I'm not anti-white. I'm just committed to investing in the black post-slave, post-colonial world and bigging up my people because I love my people. They're better than anybody else, but I know that loving blackness is a form of political resistance. So I have to love my people to resist the racism. Wow. Wow. Well, <laughs> as always, I I get more than I bargained for. There was no discount in in, in that conversation. No, I, listen, and I, then, it still owes me the discount. There's no, there's, there's, no, there's no discount in that. But I just want to say thank you. I think your your ideas 
Um, I don't really see them as radical. I see them as just what should be normalized. Um, but because we don't hear these voices, your voices on a mainstream um, level, it it gets pigeonholed as being radical. I think what you guys are doing and what you've spoken about is so impactful. I can't wait for the world to hear what you've just said. It's brilliant. So thank you so much for your time. I know Birmingham's a long way away for you guys. So you, you know, you've got to get on the journey. Not too far. Not too far, but thank you so much. Not my pleasure. You, Look, and thank you for thank making you, this space available, Ben. I think it's really important, courageous, dynamic work you're doing. I, I, you, you're, you power the fight in my prayers. You know, God answers the prayers of Pentecostal people first. So in my prayers, and I just want to encourage you to keep on keeping on and to grow the vision, you know, because you're ordained, you're doing this work, but see this as being a multifaceted organization and that and that um, don't be afraid of taking that leap of faith to move in a new direction. So listen, the black church now, so we're going to pray. We're going to pray. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> I don't mind you praying. No, no. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray then. Let's just pray to end this because that might make it more spiritual. Remember, people listen. I didn't know you pray, Robin. Listen, <laughs> listen, listen, I live with a Jamaican woman. You know, I have to pray hard. Yeah, um, um, this um, dear God who is like mother and father to us. Mm. Thank you for this opportunity to share, to break bread amongst friends, amongst colleagues, and to be in the presence of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this time. We pray that if there is anything that we have said that has made people feel uncomfortable, has made them feel jumpy, they won't see it as um, something negative, but instead the prodding of your spirit to move them on, to think in no, new ways, to move in no, new ways, to be in new ways. Um, I pray also for power of the fight that you will continue to bless them, continue to help them to push forward, uh, push in every new direction and to break every barrier. Um, and finally, you know, as uh, we've been taught in the Pentecostal church, we we pray against those forces of wickedness and negativity that would try to do harm to this organization, to your people, Lord Jesus. And we, we, we bind them up and we just loose that spirit of courage, that spirit of hope, that spirit of right mind, that spirit, Lord Jesus, that will uh, that makes the impossible possible. Mm -hmm. These things we ask in your holy and precious name to your son, our savior liberator and friend jesus christ amen amen what a, what, a, what a way to close thank you so much thank you, thank you. Thank you.